I'm Sean. I uh, live in Minneapolis and father of two little boys and also a full-time executive at a nonprofit and a grad student as well. Right. I was wondering if we needed intros again. <laughs> I am. I'm tapping full-time man-child and trying to figure myself out. I like it. Yeah. No, I don't know if it's something that we need to do every episode or not. I don't know. I, there's something about having that to me that just sort of helps hmm. frame a little bit. Like you never know when somebody's going to jump in, they might just like stumble across an episode and it's just two dudes with no background. <laughs> True. So how was your fortnight? Busy. I mean, I had multiple assignments for grad school stuff. As always, there's ongoing to-do lists for work as well as some deadlines. The kiddos both got a little sick, not COVID as far as we know, but they have been exposed to it already at least a, a few times. So my hope is that they have some solid immunity. Sorry to hear that. Oh, well, no, I appreciate that, but you know, they're good. <laughs> really kind of standard quotidian couple of weeks. Quotidian. Uh, yeah. A fancy um, SAT word there, huh? Right. Making me Google stuff. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing that we have things like Google, right? Oh, okay. All right. Every day, daily? Yeah, I'm just a little tired, but that's sort of my, my status quo. Yeah. Parent life, basically, right? Mm-hmm. How about yourself? Well, my cat has decided to join us. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I don't know, hanging in there, trying to have better lifestyle stuff, taking long walks in the sun. Yeah, I mean, sunshine matters a lot for all of us. That's that's certainly the case, and I know that it matters significantly for those of us who struggle with um, mental health stuff, too. So, And that's just it. I'm not going back on medication. Therefore, I read a book about this, and I'm taking a crack at lifestyle stuff. Like... Curbing the rumination, getting more, got to get that D and <laughs> uh, more social time. And, you know, this certainly helps with that. Uh-huh. Fish oil. Kitty. Kitty's on brand, knocking stuff off the table. I think I noticed a difference over time. It's, of course, it's going to be subtle and gradual. But getting to bed a little sooner, waking up a little sooner. And I think that's the sunshine effect affecting circadian rhythms i find myself doing chores a little easier it's just fewer roadblocks i don't know if i'm just getting my hopes up i don't know if that's placebo effect but i sure would like it to be effective i mean maybe i should talk about why i'm not going back on medication yeah i was gonna ask i mean i i've been on mental health medication in the past i also made the choice to not consume it. And I have not taken mental health meds since probably 2010, I think. Which is not to say that everything was smooth sailing and that I, you know, I didn't fall into some self-medication habits for a period of time. Yeah, that'll happen. But I'd be interested to hear why you made that choice. I mean, I know that some doctors that I talked to and then, and then other people who work in the mental health field 
they're not necessarily pro-medication or anti-medication, but I've heard a lot of people say like medication can be really effective. And I've read on one of the various self-help books and depression books that Prozac and other medications are the best advancement since, I don't know, since bloodletting in medieval ages. <laughs> that's not saying a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that's not. <laughs> that's not what he actually wrote. I don't remember what the real quote is. <laughs> Your two <laughs> options if you're clinically depressed are leeches and Prozac. <laughs> oh, no. I'll definitely take Prozac when that's, well, actually, leeches don't make me gain weight or don't make me irritable. Ah. Those were the two enormous complaints of mine. Uncontrollable weight gain, regardless of eating clean and working out six days a week, which I did for months. And nope, no control over my weight, which what better way to make me depressed? And then several of them or all of them are known to cause irritability. And I was on medium high dosages of several of these drugs and... Mm. You know, it's also on me, but it's partly on these drugs that twist your mind. And I lost friendships. Mm -hmm. It was real bad. I would feel attacked when I kind of wasn't being, and I would retaliate. I would lash out in response, air quotes to that. And except it wasn't a response. It was just, it was drugs messing with my head. And I was just being a prick sometimes. That's brutal. Mm -hmm. Part of that loops back into what we talked about, I don't know, a month ago about what was the word? How dare I be so inelegant about it? Composure. Mm -hmm. Having bad composure. Even if I were right about those, those handful of lashing out, even if I were right, I should have done it better. Yeah. I should have said, hey, man, you're being rude. Do you mean to come off as this and that? Instead, I would just, ah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, right, like any drug will change minds. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it's just a matter of degrees and the intensity of the drug. And mm. I think that my experience was not, the same taking the drugs that I was on. And in particular, it was just one. It was, well, Butrin, I think it was for a while, which is a pretty moderate, was my understanding, middle of the road, antidepressant type. Sure. And I was on that too. Yeah. I didn't feel irritable. Mm -hmm. I did just kind of feel not quite myself and detached. Whereas like a, a really bad depressive state might result in like withdrawing from the world to an extent or withdrawing from relationships or mm. just kind of turtle up. I, yeah. it was a, not a full on zombification, but a detachedness where I was still present in the world, which just felt really odd. It just felt really strange to me. It felt like I was going through all of the motions and feeling neutral about everything. Yeah. Without feeling negative. So it wasn't like it was better. It was just flat. Yeah. Which I guess you could say is better than feeling terrible all the time. 
That's what they say. They bring the bottom up. They bring the floor up on your spectrum of emotions. Well, they also say it brings the top down. So it just, like you say, it flattens the whole spectrum of affect of emotions. Right. I totally understand that. And right, do you want to be, is that okay to be, is that acceptable in your life to be semi-zombified, to be kind of turtled up? Right. It's rough. I decided after a while that no, that was not okay with me. Not with these other side effects. Right. Did that reach a critical mass, a decision point? I mean, as far as any particular incident, no. It was just over a period of time having the awareness that I didn't like being trapped in this kind of thin boundary of of affect, as you say, right? Yeah. And I was willing to explore how I could go about mitigating the bottom without putting a lid on the top. Right. And yeah, I don't want to necessarily drag all of our conversations back into mindfulness and meditation. (laughs) Go ahead. I think one of the things that began to work for me is understanding that attachment to the high and attachment to the low was more of the issue than the low or the high itself. I see. Again, not not to say that there isn't always going to be attachment that occurs, but having the awareness of, ooh, I'm actually getting kind of attached to this feeling right now means that you can then make a choice about it. Or at least you have the option to make a choice about it. Right. I think that there are a lot of variables for every unique individual and certainly like clinical depression and anxiety, which is what I have been diagnosed with, are not the same thing as bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or even more severe things like multiple personality disorder and even like psychosis, right? Is that just to give a disclaimer that that this isn't a bright line rule? This isn't for everyone, our choices, right? Sure. And I have no doubt that there are cases where someone it's probably in their best interest to take prescribed medications consistently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know some people that are on medications and some that aren't, uh, of course. Yeah, I've read and heard that some people just can't live their life without it. And right, I will never step on that. Yeah, absolutely. They get different side effects or fewer or none, no side effects. Uh, It was interesting to me a a little bit ago, you were talking about how the increased emphasis you put on making sure to get sun Mm. during the day has seemed to make it, at least in the short term, an improvement in your circadian rhythms. Yeah. Fingers crossed about not just placebo effect. (laughs) Well, placebo effect. I mean, sometimes I think that there's a fair, a fair argument that could be made that like placebo or not, if it's making a difference, it's making a difference. And if it's made a difference, then is it really a placebo? Anyway, that's another mindful, mindfulness thing there. Anyway, um, it's just whether it lasts, whether it will, we will hold on. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask, are you familiar at all with the not opposite, but 
the other half of the cycle, so to speak, in the form of ultradian rhythms. Ultradian? No. Yes, ultradian rhythms. So I became aware of ultradian rhythms um, in listening to a podcast um, and then looking kind of deeper into the content that this particular doctor is putting out there. He's a neuroscientist, uh, a research neuroscientist, so not not a practicing psychologist or surgeon or any of those things. Okay. His name's Dr. Andrew Huberman. He does have a podcast for anybody who might be listening to to us. Uh, it's called the Huberman Hub- Lab. Yeah, Huberman Lab podcast. <laughs> He's done certainly plenty of the kind of the the big name podcast cycle or like circuit that seems to exist these days. Um, but yeah, he's a Stanford, Stanford research uh, scientist and professor. But um, I, I heard first heard about Ultradian through his podcast. And so where circadian is, is your sleep cycles. Ultradian rhythms are cycles that occur throughout the day in your energy level and your capacity to focus and be present mm. and produce and have any kind of peak output, so to speak. And one of the things that was kind of recommended was paying attention to that process for you and seeing mm. kind of how you go throughout your day and responding to those ultradian rhythms as they occur. So, Say, for example, if you've been sitting at your computer for about an hour and a half typing away at a paper or on work or whatever it might be, and you start Mm -hmm. to feel yourself just kind of like, all right, dragon, I'm losing my focus here. I'm feeling a little tired. I'm feeling a little disconnected, disengaged. That's a signal that you're hitting the the valley of an ultradian rhythm cycle, and Mm -hmm. it's time to kind of defrag, so to speak. So like... Get up, go for a walk, have a snack, maybe do like a very quick, you know, five minute session of just like breathing. Mm. I'm assuming you don't mean just medicate it with coffee or right. you know, cocaine or uh, yeah. JK. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah, don't step over it and just kind of try to push through. Right. And if you give yourself, you know, like 15, 20 minutes, maybe like, ma- you know, maximum a half an hour. That's enough time, it seems, based on the kind of very superficial reading into it that I've done. That's enough time for your brain to kind of recharge. And when I say that, I mean very specifically, like it actually gives time for your metabolism to clear out all of the byproducts of energy production and use in your brain. And like that is what then allows you to cycle back up into a kind of peak focus output productivity. And so it's, it kind of occurs very similarly to, they talk about with the circadian rhythms, you kind of, you sleep in 90 minute cycles. It's very close to that with the ultradian rhythms too. Like you've got sort of 90 minutes, like there's a little bit of a ramp up period. There's kind of a peak performance period and then there's a ramp down period and then there's a valley where you probably need to take a break and then you ramp up again and there's a natural impetus right to take a break but we've been socially and culturally entrained to just push through and keep working and Mm -hmm. 
it's not the kind of thing where like that actually works. So like what ends up happening is that if you just push through throughout the day, you basically accumulate all of this detritus in your brain and like you are progressively less functional, less aware, more emotionally aggravated and irritable, probably going to get worse sleep. Like, you know, this whole host of different physiological effects that are not positive. And I'll be the first to say that I am not the best yet at monitoring my ultradian rhythms. Um, hashtag super white nerd. Um, but, but it's definitely something that I try to keep, you know, more in my conscious awareness. Yeah. I'll keep it in mind and do a little reading off air. It's gotta be interesting and somewhat helpful. I'm also not going to put all my eggs in that basket. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't mean to talk shit about this thing that you're suggesting. I just, one who doesn't have experience, someone else who doesn't have experience with, let's say major depressive disorder might look at this and say, Oh, those sad people just need to monitor their ultradian rhythms. (laughs) Yeah. Right. right. And which is just, ah, which would Which be is, out, you know, out there. Fuck you, by the way, if that's what you're thinking. But um, <laughs> sorry, right. I think we've decided at this point, at least for now, this podcast is not exactly family friendly. Well, it is. Yeah, it is family friendly, but it's explicit. Right. Right. So I guess I was just that's a disclaimer for walking that balance. Yeah. And by no means either was I suggesting that, you know, just watch out for your ultradian rhythms and, you know, everything will be peachy. Right. It's just more of like a, what what tools do we have in the in the box to apply, you know, even by degrees, by you know, like small percentages, improve not not even just like a day on the whole, but can improve your hour to hour throughout the day, which can have its own cumulative effect, in my experience. Right. I will loop that into my consciousness, as you say. <laughs> Get out the old lasso and just rein that idea in. Right? It can't hurt to try to incorporate that into my rhythm. Mm-hmm. Your ultradian rhythm. Indeed. Well, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> well, I did. So. Uh huh. Good, good, good. So, was there anything you wanted to like finish up from last fortnight? I even could give you a better answer from when you asked me what has moved me to do my self-improvement journey. I said the J word. Oh, no. (laughs) I've been a little bit hesitating because it's rather deep and dark. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear it. And you're talking to somebody who does not shy away from the dark side. I mean, I think I think that the reality is that we all have both sides in us. And when we try to push away the dark side is when we end up in big trouble. I mean, it's regardless of what you believe about Carl Jung and his whole, like in integrate your shadow. Mm. I still think that it's, it's true that like everybody has the good. Well, I hate using that good and bad, but everybody's got everything within them. They've got the capacity for everything in them. And the reality is that we move through life and through each day kind of swaying back and forth. And, 
think, you know, sort of when we're in the middle, it seems like it's it's good and it's okay sometimes to to lean one way or the other a little bit more. But anyway, all that's to say is please, please do share. Thank you. And by the way, I love that about you, Sean, that you don't shy away from the deep stuff and that that we can go deep on this, that we can go dark on this pod. We can go deep. We can go as deep as the amount of D that you're getting. Oh my God. Sun. <laughs> An hour maybe of now D. it's not now, now it's not family. Not family. Friendly. Yeah. Well, well, we'll decide later if we keep that in, but yeah. uh, nice. I want to keep it in. I do. That's what she saw. Oh no. Okay. See oh. now now we're in a wrong. Now we're now we're in the wrong. Off the rails. Off the rails. Somehow I did not see that one coming. Uh, <laughs> usually I'm the one to have the dirty mind and, uh, and say phrasing. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyhow. My local friends here in Las Vegas have like ruined me. I didn't have quite as dirty a mind or quite as reactive a that's what she said mind. Yeah. And then they trained me. You met them one time when you visited with with your wife. Yes. And they just, they trained me to go, to go for the low hanging fruit and Uh, to blurt out that's what she said. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get back to the thing. Yeah. So when you asked what, what moved me? what got me to start my own self-improvement? And I was, I wasn't quite sure what to say. And I was a little bit, a little bit dodging the question. And the answer is from, I can't remember exactly when it started, but suffering is what got me. Inexplicable internal suffering is what moved me. I don't just wake up in the morning and go, I'd like to do some self-work and I want to go to therapy and talk about feelings. And it otherwise, if I felt reasonably decent, that sounds like a waste of time. I'd rather go biking. I'd rather make a podcast. I'd rather work. Of course, of course, I don't want to do those things. Not really. However, when there's this thing holding back your entire life, you'll do anything to make it go away, to make it better, to self-improve. And I went and saw more doctors than I can remember. And turns out they call that thing major depressive disorder. I didn't even accept the diagnosis at first. Or I thought, what? That doesn't... I'm not even sad. The only reason I'm starting to get sad is because I'm too tired to do anything. If I could just have energy back, Mm. I can... My life is great. And this is, I don't know. A decade ago or something after after a whole bunch of struggling and striving and trying to figure this out. And only a bit later did accept that, you know, read more about it. I didn't know quite what depression meant at the time and realized, yeah, yeah, that is it. That depression isn't just being sad and it's a whole bunch of other things. Point is, I would wake up into an experience of life that was not at all acceptable to me. When you just hate mourning, when everything hurts, when your soul has the flu. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I, to me, I think the key word, at least that, that resonates for me is the suffering. Yeah. And really just being in the suffering mm. and it is all consuming. So yeah, after I tried a whole bunch of external stuff and changed Mm -hmm. my diet a ton of times and quit more jobs than I'd like to admit and 
tore apart a few relationships and crashed a couple of motorcycles. Inwards was the only direction I had left, Mm -hmm. if you will. And yeah, I could have kept on being dysfunctional, being part of the problem. But then I was willing to try anything. And if bucking off the little bit of stigma about psychotherapy and talking to a professional was what it took, then I'm game. And then turns out, sort of backed into that sideways that, oh, I actually like that a lot. It's I enjoyed mm. the process. And mm-hmm. it turns out I was more introspective than I realized. So that's what moved me to begin. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you did. I think that it's probably more rare than we know or are able to track for people to actually take that step. Mm. And I would imagine that there are a lot more, like lots and lots and lots of people who have struggled, do struggle, are struggling in that way and never do anything about it, never get curious enough to dig deeper than, you know, I just need to get to bed earlier. Yeah. Or never dig any deeper than, yeah, if I drink two, three, four beers and a cocktail every night, well, then I'm golden, right? Like, helps you sleep. Yeah. I, for I, a bit. you know, I pass out, get up, do it again the next day, right? And I think that is the, the suffering and how we relate to suffering. And, and again, underscoring that by no means is it to say that there, are not people out there who have neurophysiological conditions, neurochemical conditions that are different than everyone else. Everybody's nervous system is different. And that does not at all say like, oh, yes, everyone is suffering the same and everyone's suffering is equal. No, it's absolutely not. But I do think that I'm glad that you did. And I think that it's, I think a lot of people shy away from it because of how hard it is you get to a point where it's like, it's this or what? Like, am I going to, am I going to kill myself? Like, you know, like that can happen for people. And that's an ultimatum. Right. And it's sort of like, what choice are you going to make there? Right. Cause you do have a choice. And about a month or so ago, uh, there was a guest speaker in one of my classes and he's a native individual. And he talked about his experience when he was in his early mid twenties, having lived with generational trauma, he talked about how he, he felt like he didn't want to die, but he didn't know how to live. And I get that. He was deep in the throes of alcohol use disorder. I mean, the way he talked about it was he was basically facing oblivion and didn't really know where to go or what to do next. And just sort of by necessity almost fell into the same kind of internal introspective process of examination and changed his whole course. It's terrible that it takes enormous suffering to get there, though. Yeah, it is. I get that that sentiment of don't want to die, but don't know how to live. The way I've thought about it is definitely don't want to be gone, but this is unacceptable. It's got to change from this. It's got to get either better or worse. Mm -hmm. 
that's the enormous impetus for change. Yeah. I've talked about this, you know, a few times and I don't know where to go with that. Or I don't know if that's a, a bummer for certain people to listen to, or there's certainly no action item for anyone else to do. No. And I, I mean, we're not clinicians, right? We're not psychologists. We're not psychiatrists. We're not yeah. mental health workers. I mean, it, it's a cliche, but I also think that cliches come from, you know, a space of kind of kernels of truth in some form. For sure. But there's this sort of story that, that I've heard. It's, you know, more almost like a, an aphorism is probably the wrong word, like adage. I don't know. Colloquialism. I don't know. It's not a colloquialism. But of a little kid who's lost in the forest and only has, you know, like an animal friend or two there with them helping. And the little kid says to the animal, I'm lost. I can't see where to go. I don't know what to do next. Mm. It's really, really dark, like so dark that I feel stuck. And the animal says, can you see the next step? One foot in front of the other. Yeah, right? just, just take the next step. And suddenly all those steps add up. Right. Yeah, proverb isn't the right word, nor idiom, Yeah. nor anecdote. I don't know. <laughs> Allegory, maybe? I don't know. I've heard of a of an analogous allegory. When you're driving at night, your headlights only go a couple hundred feet, not the entire trip, and yet you make the whole trip that way. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of ways that speaks to the human condition more broadly. We act like we know what we are, where we've been, and where we're going. But in reality we only really see a little tiny sliver of everything and how we get from anywhere to another place is mostly blind faith almost. Um, and I don't mean faith in a religious sense, but yeah, but just kind of get out there and start moving and you'll get somewhere. Mm. I think that again, it sort of goes back to, What's moved you? Well, if you are moved, do something. It doesn't have to be the right thing. It doesn't even have to be the thing that, that sticks. But do something. And, you know, we fumble around long enough in the darkness and you bump into something that clicks. And I guess all of that's not necessarily to say that there's a simple solution and, and like, to dismiss a way that it can be deeply painful and incredibly difficult and that you like, there are points in time where the impetus to just end it can be strong. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is always a step. And I guess it doesn't always work for everyone. I mean, that that's also the truth. We lose people to, mental health disorders and addiction all the time. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way though. It would be great if that didn't happen. Yeah. I'm thoroughly convinced that nobody, no human on earth wants to be dead. It's just some of them 
the suffering is so great, they'd rather be gone than keep going. It's a terrible last resort backup. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would just add too, like if if you do happen to be listening and you feel that way, please take a step, reach out to someone. Mm. Because I don't think anyone in your life wants you gone. No. Unfortunately, for those in that position, it's not about the others in their life. I, of course, agree with you. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I don't love it when people say, <laughs> this is not what you said, but when people say, that would hurt everyone in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. Don't say that to somebody <laughs> who's feeling suicidal. I'm Absolutely. like, really? You... <laughs> it's like, oh, you managed to make this about you, did you? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, don't say that to somebody who's who's legitimately suicidal. What was the wording you used? No one wants you gone. I would just add on to that, that you might feel better if you talk to people. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about anything. It doesn't have to be about this. It's just, there's a reason they call it the 10,000 pound phone. And once you pick it up, I find I feel a bit better. Mm-hmm. Even talking about sports or, well, knowing me, it's not sports, but <laughs> talking about anything. Sports ball. Piggers are going all the way this year. <laughs> it is about you. And it is about what, you know, what can you do to feel better? And absolutely, if anybody says to you, well, don't do that, because think of all the pain you'd cause to everyone else. You fucking walk away from them and find somebody else to call. (laughs) Yep. They just don't get it. Which is, you know, people don't get it. I might even say it's worth taking a crack at helping them understand. But if they insist on berating you for others' pain when your pain is so great that you're willing to check out, Mm -hmm. then if one or two attempts doesn't work, then peace. Yeah. So that topic on that relationship. Yeah, set set a boundary there. Some people don't handle boundaries well. No, it's true. They would never say it in these terms, but they think it's their right to step over your boundaries, to keep pushing you. Mm Mm-hmm. It's only happened occasionally to me. Yeah. And I've, I've found in my experience that those folks who do not do well respecting boundaries of other folks are awful at setting their own boundaries. Makes sense if they really just don't know what they are. Yeah. But that's interesting. So that implies that, let's say, an overbearing, pushy person also will let other people use their help too much and let them push them? Maybe that. I think also, though, just from the perspective of, like, they can't even set boundaries for themselves. They are so caught in the narcissistic personality disorder that they have no concept of the world that is not their world. The world is me. And everything in my purview. And so there is no boundary. How could there be a boundary? How could I have done something wrong there? I didn't cross any boundary because there is no boundary. There's just me and what matters to me and what helps me and what. Of course. 
and that I believe that's examples of them them stepping over others' boundaries. But I only gave one or two examples of their boundaries. But what would this basically narcissistic person setting boundaries? What would that be or look like or sound like? I mean, to me, it would start with some semblance of self-control. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we're using boundaries in slightly different ways. Okay. Uh, but proceed. No, I just just saying, like, I, I feel like people who are bad with boundaries tend to not be able to, have, like, set boundaries for themselves. And in other words, they, they have little self-control. Mm. And then as, as a result, they need to surround themselves with people who who kind of create the structure for their life but who they can just kind of step over and on all the time so right to me that sounds like yes those are boundaries but that sounds like them reining in their own impulses or reining in their own self-control it sounds like they'd be well it's consideration it's consideration of others, whereas I consider boundaries to be a wall against what you'll allow others to do. That's how I usually use the word. Okay. Although I don't think a, a narcissistic person would ever struggle. Maybe I'm contradicting you. I don't think a narcissistic person would ever struggle with being too servile or too... Helpful isn't quite the word. Doing too much for others, because I think their narcissism would just get in the way of that. They would just feel put upon. They would do one thing for others after receiving 10 favors and think that they were being used. Maybe that's just to say semantics. We're using the word boundaries a bit differently. <laughs> I think that's a... That's an interesting point, though, or line of inquiry. If someone does not respect anyone else's boundaries, but has boundaries for themselves, are they really boundaries? It's an odd thing to think about for me. I guess I would say I think those people think or believe that they've set their own boundaries, but it's often the case that they are equally used or equally susceptible to being used because of their belief of like, I can set these hard firm boundaries, but I can cross everybody else's. And you often end up in a situation where you're not maybe aware of how your ostensible boundaries are being crossed. Wait, this is the narcissistic person? Yeah. Is not aware of it. I don't follow your logic. How would a narcissistic person get used and have their boundaries overstepped. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have ex examples in my head. I just don't know that they're examples I want to use because I feel like they're too overdone. Maybe I need to think about that one a little bit more and try to come up with something that's a little bit more concrete. All right. Well, I mean, hell, like, I guess I think about I think about somebody like Donald Trump, right? Oh, boy. Yeah. And how he seems to believe that he's got all these boundaries up around himself. But the kind of codependency that occurs like for narcissistic people makes them particularly susceptible to people taking advantage of them as well. 
and then like not seeing that because they just believe so wholeheartedly that like they can't lose and they are the one that's always in control and they're crossing the boundaries and not having their boundaries crossed. And hmm. I mean, I just think about the ways that like he was so manipulated by everyone around him and is so manipulated by everyone around him and still sort of believes that he's, he's the guy who's running the show. Um, was he manipulated? I, I didn't necessarily track that. He's out of touch, certainly. Yeah. But I didn't know in what way. Well, I would, I mean, I would say he was certainly manipulated by, for example, like Vladimir Putin. Oh, well, yeah. And I think that was often manipulated by the people in his inner circle while he was president, and I'm sure still is. Anyway, I think we're probably off, off the rails and down a hole with that one that nobody really wants to listen to because, I mean... <laughs> There's been enough of that, so. There has been a lot. What's an example for you? Like, who's, well, maybe not, like, not naming names, but, like, what's an example for you of someone who you observe crossing lots of boundaries but seeming to have their own really hard line boundaries? I wouldn't call it a hard line boundary. I don't have an example in mind. Yeah. It's just that that kind of personality type, it's not about boundaries. It's just that they feel entitled to the whole world without seeming to understand that other people exist too. Which is a boundaryless world in a sense. Yeah, but thinking that they are owed everything. Right. And therefore, the moment you ask them for something, they're offended and they lash out. Mm, mm thereby inadvertently keeping a boundary, though they would never call it that or realize that's what it is because they don't know what boundaries are. They would just be like, oh, how dare you ask me for that? I do so much for you. Not quantify it. Mm -hmm. I think I'm mashing up a whole bunch of different things I've noticed. Yeah. An amalgamation. I'm sorry. I don't have a good example. I don't know. Maybe it's just a, like you said, a, like a semantics thing or a, changing the terminology. My observation is that people who are not respectful of other people's boundaries tend to be kind of like codependent themselves in a way. I can see that. And by definition, to an extent, that means that they are willing to allow themselves and allow other people to do things like in their sphere of influence that, you know, someone who's got a healthy sense of boundaries, like would tolerate and not in a sense of like, you're taking this from me, but like users get used. You know what I mean? It makes sense what you're saying in theory. I'm, I'm just trying to put it into an example. I would say that setting a boundary is a great way to find out who somebody is. Yes. It's a great little test of character because if they get mad and push harder, oh man, that tells you a lot. Yes, I agree. And I mean, I think to be fair, like all of us sometimes get a little testy when a boundary gets set. But the difference is, do you allow that kind of initial perturbance to dissipate or do you keep pushing it like you said? Totally agreed. Yeah, that it, it would be fair to say repeated pushing right. tells you a lot. 
Do you feel like boundaries have been something that has been important in your movements around mental health and improving mental health? Absolutely. Because, of course, boundaries would be drawing a line in the sand about here's what I'm willing to do or allow and here's what I'm not. And yes, let's say in whatever friends or relationships, it's worth a lot of mental health to not let people steamroll you. And that's the thing I had to learn. I was too susceptible to being steamrolled. I was too obsequious. That's a good word. What's a regular word for that? Docile. Docile. Mousy. I was too docile and I let people walk over me. And then learning how to not allow that, the people that have been walking over you, oh man, do they not like it. Right. But it's the stoppage of the walking over (laughs) is worth an enormous amount of mental health. And then in turn, the seeping in of some self-esteem, like I held firm on that. I didn't let this person hurt me. Mm -hmm. That helps. That slowly builds a little bit. I had to learn what boundaries are in my 20s. I just didn't get that information. You know, it's not probably not a thing that parents usually teach their kids. I mean, hopefully. Are you saying that parents don't teach their kids boundaries? Or do you mean more so in like a social context? It would be great if parents taught their kids explicitly or implicitly boundaries, but I'm not sure that I've seen that much. Hmm. Have you? I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience and family of origin. And I think that boundaries were, you know, I'm not off the top of my head recalling like an explicit conversation about boundaries, but I think that they were pretty implicitly ingrained. I certainly believe that there are a lot, and maybe even it's the majority of families out there that never never really do a whole lot around boundaries. I mean, I guess speaking in in my own case here as a parent, we're doing a lot and have been doing a lot, especially in the recent year with my oldest around boundaries. And yeah, I mean, it's a process of socialization and social emotional skill development. But I also get that, like I said, there's probably a lot of families that aren't doing that with kids at a young age. And I think it's important to try and do it at a young age because that sets the stage for later life. Um, Totally agreed. And maybe this is an era thing. I've been hearing about this in in only recent years that let's say you, you don't tell a kid to give Uncle Randy a hug. You ask him, would you like to? Right. And that either explicitly or implicitly teaches the kid that words have power and that they have the choice to say no. And if they Mm -hmm. say no, you do not force them. Right. I mean, partly because that teaches a great lesson and also partly because some families have uh, certain family members that, that are not good with kids, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you're teaching the kid that they can say no and that that's fine, and they don't have to tolerate everything that happens to them. Mm-hmm. 
And I think, I mean, it's also one thing to learn boundaries within a family unit, whether it's a, you know, kind of an intimate family unit or a, or a broader family unit versus learning boundaries in a social context, which is harder. I think it is harder to set boundaries sometimes when it's about peer-to-peer relationships because of that desire for inclusion and that desire to be liked and valued. Right. It's so easy to let someone step on your boundaries because you won't be ostracized for that. Yeah. It takes courage and willpower and and a risk that you could like you could very well be ostracized for a while or by a certain group of people or a particular individual that maybe like you had a relationship with and you wanted to keep that relationship but they were doing something that you just no longer were going to tolerate and it's even if you don't damage the relationship it certainly can feel like setting a boundary could damage the relationship yes. and to a lot of people, myself included, that's a really scary thing because mm-hmm. we're we're social creatures and we value our relationships extremely highly, maybe more than anything. Right, and to me, that gets that gets at sort of the crux of setting up boundaries and sticking with boundaries is about the value that you believe that you have intrinsically. Because you know that even if setting up this boundary and sticking to this boundary causes the dissipation of a relationship, causes me to no longer have XYZ person in my life, causes me to lose out on this job or whatever it may be, you still love yourself. And that's what matters because you believe that and you, you live that. And in loving yourself, you know, this job goes away. I will get another one. I love me. I will be okay. Right. And I would, just to add to that, I might not even say it in those terms. While loving oneself is wonderful and positive, Mm -hmm. I might just say it in terms of, if this boundary sets fire to this relationship, then I don't want this relationship. Right. Yeah. If the person can't, handle or job employer partner whatever can't handle a boundary then what good are they Mm -hmm. well it's it's not healthy it's not going to do anything for me at that point right oh yeah and even if it's not necessarily about like what can i get out of this it's more so like can i be a whole being like can i be a whole independent being and totally agreed One has to be, boundaries are part of the whole. Yes, boundaries are part of the whole. There is no whole without boundaries. Right. If you don't have boundaries, you allow allow someone to take bites out of your whole. (laughs) Yeah. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Take bites out of your being. Ah. That was terrible. Oh, so good. So good. I caught that one. (laughs) Uh, Bruh. circling back you said in response to me just recently that it's not about just what can i get out of that can i ask what you mean did you interpret what i said as i said about what good is that relationship as wanting to get squeeze the juice out of that relationship i just don't understand no just i mean i guess i would just say again like value right like that 
we engage in relationships, whether they are personal, familial, professional, social, political, because they have perceived value. And it doesn't mean the value is like transactional. It just means that there is value. Like it brings joy or pleasure or a sense of well-being, a sense of purpose or meaning. And that when we set up a boundary in the context of that relationship, there is a potential risk, right, that we lose the value of that relationship. Absolutely. But the flip side of that is that perhaps at that point, then that value is less than it was perceived to be. Yep, for sure. Or that that value was poisoned, tainted by this. Sure. This entitlement that they can do, they can overstep whenever they want. Mm hmm. They could bite your hole. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to. Yeah, funny enough, that makes me think of. Um, a local donut shop here and <laughs> see where this is going. No, no, it's actually, <laughs> they're actually a really fun spot. It's, um, it's called glam doll and their whole theme is sort of like 1950s pinup slash punk, like, but they've infused it with like punk kind of like, but they make these super like high end style donuts that have all kinds of fun I guess the logic in my head, the train of thought there went from hole to donut hole to donut to I like donuts to Glamdahl. And then I was thinking, you know what? I should probably get some donuts for my family this weekend because that's always a win. Oh, so wholesome. Yes. Uh-huh. I haven't made my own family and I didn't go quite so wholesome. I went in the direction <laughs> of Archer. Sure. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I have, in fact, made my own people. What's up with that? People be making people. Yeah, they do. They do. Good for you. Someone's got to do it. Maybe too many people are doing it. <laughs> Possibly. I wasn't going to say it yeah. first. Uh, but. but you, I have uh, a very strong feeling that you're a good parent, and, and so is your partner. We are, we are striving. Um, it is not without its significant and often tumultuous and at times painful challenges. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I guess, again, another cliche, right? Like they say that you get the kids that you need as a person. Do they? I've, I've been heard that at least a couple of times. Gotcha. We'll see if that bears to be true. In some respects, I would say yes. Shifting gears just a little bit here. Uh, I had texted you like last week, kind of a, you know, like a note about sort of the opposite, not the opposite of, but like the, the sort of the yin to the yang or like the interconnected aspect of like, on the one hand, there's this theory of generational trauma, but we never talk about the other hand, which is kind of the, like the development of sort of a generational, like intrinsic oppressor mentality or state of being state of mind and i thought i would read you this quote which maybe is probably is going to be a little little out of context for you 
but I think it speaks to why I find it, if not intriguing, like kind of important for white folks in particular to be engaging with whiteness more and sort of trying to understand what it is. Sure. And how it moves, so to speak. But so, all right. So this is a quote folks. uh, And it's going to be a quote in two parts. The author is Dr. Fred Moten. Uh, Again, when we get to the point that we're doing show notes, I can toss that in. The quote is, Civilization, or more precisely civil society, with all its transformative hostility, was mobilized in the service of extinction, of disappearance. The shit is genocidal. Fuck a home in this world if you think you have one. And then later... Yeah, well, the ones who happily claim and embrace their own sense of themselves as privileged ain't my primary concern. I don't worry about them first, but I would love it if they got to the point where they had the capacity to worry about themselves, because then maybe we could talk. That's like that Fred Hampton shit. He'd be like, white power to white people, black power to black people. What I think he meant is, Look, the problematic of coalition is that coalition isn't something that emerges so that you can come help me, a maneuver that always gets traced back to your own interests. The coalition emerges out of your recognition that it's fucked up for you in the same way that we've already recognized that it's fucked up for us. I don't need your help. I just need you to recognize that this shit is killing you too, however much more softly, you stupid motherfucker, you know? So that's the quote. I don't. And, and I think like what he's getting at there, right, is that that we're living, that, that white people in particular, and especially white people that are within specific economic strata we don't take the perspective of worrying about these things for us because we're like "Ah, we're good like we've got and so it's very much it's always centering kind of our own power and how can we make it better for others when really like we need to shift the perspective to be like this these systems that we've set up even though we're benefiting from them right now they're fucking killing everything and they are going to kill us too if not right now they're going to kill off like our offspring right they're going to kill off our future generations it's destroying the world it's geogenocidal in a sense right Okay, in that sense, are we talking about environmental destruction? Just environment. Well, yeah, that's a big part of it, right? Environmental destruction, cultural destruction, racial destruction. I mean, all of it, like all sort of with the intersectionality of these various systems, right? That have that have been created that benefit a very specific portion of the population, but in reality, that benefit is is going to kill us too, and. So to me, I see a connection there with the, high, the the whole idea of like, we're always talking about what can we do for, what can we do to, and we miss what's actually going on, which is, again, like, yeah, we're always talking about in certain spaces, gen- generational trauma, but we're never talking about 
the ingrained generational like oppressor consumer container privileged side of that sure interesting yeah and this is the first time hearing that quote i do recall the thing you sent me now i guess i'm gonna i guess i'm gonna talk a little bit meta here one individual's generational trauma or epigenetics is well an individual thing and that's great let's talk about individuals but then when you take i'm less comfortable generalizing about a whole society or demographic i'm not qualified to generalize about a whole let's say race not even my own right and very few people are and i'd be interested to hear from those people but I don't know how what I can contribute to this because I'm not comfortable generalizing so broadly. It's of course a good thing to look at to improve the systems in place and to not set fire to the entire world, just a right. fraction of it, yeah. and to have empathy for other people. But I I don't make policy and I don't affect all that much those systems. What I would say there though that that's important to bear in mind is is that you are in those systems. And so of course by being aware of existing in those systems, you can affect them. Maybe not at scale, but by being aware of them and by being aware of how you fit in them and that you are complicit, right? That like we are complicit. Mm. We can change, we can make choices that perhaps make us less complicit and make us more like accomplices in trying to mm -hmm. tear the shit down. And sure. Like, and I'm not, again, I'm not asking, like, to speak about generalities here. And I'm certainly not asking for us to start trying to talk about, like, blackness, right? Like, that's not our prerogative and it's not our purview. Like, we need more yep. white people talking about whiteness. And that's sort of my motivation for bringing that quote up specifically is that we just, it's just an observation that, like, culturally, especially in the United States, especially in the West, I feel like. Getting back to one of the points that we talked about in the first conversation, we really don't look at how we've positioned ourselves as the default. And because we don't look at how we've positioned ourselves as the default, we don't see how, like Fred Moten says, it's fucked up for us too. Sure. In different ways. Mm-hmm. And because we don't see that it's fucked up for us too, we don't do anything about it. Because we just think that it's the default and we're good. Okay. You know me. I want specifics, not generalities. Yeah, but you're talking to an academic. That's what I do. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> what can I do specifically to be aware of those systems? And what can I do to make things a little better? Me, one person. Yeah. Well, I think one thing, and, and you're probably not going to like this answer, but I think <laughs> I think one thing is is to ask yourself the question, why... Is it that I have to ask what I need to do to make it different? Well, I've heard that before about, sure, that it's exhausting to, let's say, black people to educate the whites, right? But I'm asking you, I, right. you're making this point and I'm merely asking you to elaborate. Right. I guess like where I start from is just kind of like stirring the pot a little bit. Just like in everyday life, in everyday interactions, 
being able to just sort of, hmm, how am I taking up space for like literally like physically, like how am I taking up space or how, like, how am I taking up space in a social environment? Do I need to speak here? Do I need to insert myself? Do I need it to be about me? Do I just like little things like that? Right. And I hear that. yeah. Yeah. And I think we are 150 blah, 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 blah percent. (laughs) like trained culturally and socially to do that, especially as like white straight men. Oh, to talk more than we listen or. Yeah. Or just to just take the space in whatever shape or form that, that occurs like, and then operate from like, it it has me even like reading that quote and and digging back into that book, which I haven't finished. The book's called the undercommons. Okay. It even makes me question like, why am I working in the field that I'm working in? And there's been a frame shift for me that like, it's not, a, it's actually not about helping other people as much as it is about fixing this shit so that it doesn't fuck up the world for my kids. Yeah. So it helps to remove, like there's this removal of a hierarchy and this power differential there. When I start to view it from like, I'm doing this, for me and I'm doing it from those who come after me who are related to me. Right. And not so much like I'm doing this for that group of people because they have less, because they are historically marginalized, traumatized, historically disenfranchised. And it must be about justice. Like, yeah, it should be about justice, but it's also because it's all going to fucking like fall apart from my kids if I don't yeah. do this work. Yeah. Looking ahead into the future. Yeah. Being responsible. And that to me is a very different perspective than like what might get termed like a social justice warrior. Right. Who's not, they're not actually like thinking about it from that next level. They're like, I'm good. Like everything's great for me. I'm out here to make it better for everyone else. And it's like, well, you're missing the point that like, it's not really good for you. Like this shit is about to fucking fall apart, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going on a diatribe there, but I just, I find that like, that's missing. It's just missing all over the place, especially in the space that I work in. And like, even in the spaces that I'm studying in the program that I'm in and the, and the specific school, the college at the university of Minnesota is like, it's just not seeing the forest for the trees. Sometimes like it's this doing for and doing too. And we are all about equity. And it's like, yeah, I had a professor a year or two ago who, and this is a black female professor. And I add those characteristics specifically because I think it lends significance to what I'm about to, to share. And that, and she said that like, she thinks that the whole diversity, equity and and inclusion initiative that the university of Minnesota has going on is bullshit. Hmm. And she says that like diversity, equity and inclusion as an idea is bullshit because we never stop to question what is it that we are trying to diversify? What is it that we are trying to make more equitable? And what is it that we're trying to include people into? Okay. Well, educate this white man 
Can you uh, elaborate on that? Why? So in other words, what I would say is if what we're trying to do is diversify, make more equitable and include people better into systems that are already oppressing them, then it's really fucking stupid. Like it's not actually about that. It's just going to make things worse and more stratified and more like ingrained. Okay. Including into systems that already oppress them. Is that, uh, I guess, not to tie it back to environmental stuff, but that's what I'm doing. Is that mm. just the even white children are going to be born into a, a world of very uncertain air quality and mm-hmm. population? Yeah. I think that's that's a really good concrete example, right? Like, I love concrete examples. What, yeah, well, like, what, what good is it to diversify? and make more equitable and inclusive, you know, like the oil industry. Oh man. Yeah. 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 Very fair. So that's kind of like saying zoom out, look at the big picture. Yeah. In in, in a way for sure. Yeah. If we have an equal and equitable society while we keep using oil and our whole planet goes up in flames. Right. Then hooray for equality. And is it even more equitable, right? Like if we're just furthering the power differential like of those systems by further oppressing people. Like, and I don't know, the other quote that I think about, and this was somebody that, you know, I was in a conversation with, again, related to to grad school stuff. That and I think like I think that this is an MLK quote, and I'm paraphrasing and probably not getting it 100% accurate, so I should probably look it up really quick too. But um, something along the lines of like I've spent most of my organizing and movement life trying to get my people better integrated into a burning building. Oh man, which yeah, it just seems very much like look at the big picture, right? And when you say you know, into, I think you were referring to the oil industry, like working in a system, more equitable working in a system that oppresses people. I assume that's like, well, we're taking advantage of whatever local peoples that are providing us the oil. Sure. That, that's, yeah, like one component of it. Yeah. Right. I'm uh, just making sure I understand before I wade into this discussion. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, again, like a point that we had talked about before, like, <laughs> I don't broach these topics with an end goal in mind, right? It's more of a like, where does it go? Indeed. To your point earlier, like, watch out how much space you take up. I certainly used to be very small and mousy and servile. I forget the other word you you provided there. And I still am in taking up physical space. I'm very careful to be considerate of others, kind of too much. I don't, I wish I could take up my own space. I wish I could feel that I belonged. Mm. However, that's physical. And then you go over to verbal and I similarly started very mousy and quiet and introverted. And then with some therapy and growing into an adult and making some good friends, learned to blurt things. That might have to do with, I did some open mic stand-up comedy for a while. And that might have gotten me out of my shell. And it also, it might have built some habits that I don't love all the time. Like I went to blurting things maybe more than my share at times. And I've caught myself. I've noticed this in certain social situations 
where, especially with very quiet friends nearby, and I go, why did I just blurt something out? Why didn't I leave them space to talk? Mm-hmm. Did that need to be said? I find that a little interesting that I'm the opposite on physical and verbal sometimes. I do like that I'm a recovering introvert, that I'm not quite so damn quiet and introverted all the time. Right. But it's just a balance to walk. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's the word, right? It's about like, it's a balance. And there are different environments and different spaces where more or less can be done, said. I guess I find that in particular in multi, multiracial, multicultural spaces, I find myself being much more careful and aware of if I speak, when I speak, what am I saying? Does it Mm -hmm. need to be said? Not for fear of backlash, but for the purpose of, in a very real sense, trying to dismantle structurally oppressive systems and structurally oppressive social space. So just to dig into that, to ask you to elaborate, is yeah. that to say, you're trying to dismantle the fact that the whiteness is talking a little too much. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. I think whiteness is one of those, right? Of like maleness mm. or at least masculinity, patriarchy even. <gasps> you said the P word. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So yeah, like I am technically a leader at the organization where I work, right? I directors in my title, like I'm on the leadership team. I work very closely with the executive director. Mm, brush your shoulders off. Yeah, right. Um, and the board of directors, haha. Uh, but internally in staff meetings and other meetings, I will often just be quiet because I don't think that my voice is necessary. That doesn't mean that I stop myself. Like if I feel like I, if I feel like, you know, there's something that good, yeah, would be worthwhile to say, but I certainly check, like, has somebody already said this and would I be saying it just in a different way? And by saying it a different way, like, would it make me come across as essentially like communicating that the way that they said it wasn't articulated, you know, like things mm-hmm. like that. But just in general, like, I don't think that there's a need for me to speak that much. Like, yeah, I'm on the leadership team, but I don't need to talk. Sure. Restraint is certainly a virtue, the ability to have that. Mm -hmm. Now, and I would, of course, there's nuance in everything. I would say clarifying things so that you understand is, of course, valuable. Yes. Yeah. You're not necessarily trying, acting like you're distilling. Right. Because someone else wasn't clean. Yeah. And... Again, it's it's sort of like allowing there for there to be space for other people to step into that space to like to have shared power within that space. For sure. And I guess too, I like I would tie it back to like I'm not actually really doing it for them. I'm I'm more so doing it for me. Doing it so that you're bettering yourself? Not even necessarily bettering myself, but doing it so that we can move just a little bit more towards like abolishing these, these systems that are fucking up the program for everyone. Oh no, you said another politically charged word. You said abolish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, JK. Yeah, man. 
Not being a part of the problem is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Being considerate to others is always going to be in style. At least. It should be. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it is in style. We could probably debate that, but it should be. Yeah. It's always going to be good character, a good thing to do. Yes. Perhaps in closing, be kind. I like it. I don't want to preach to people, but I think we said it. And be kind to yourself. That might ripple out. I know I struggle with that. Amen.